In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. What brings you here today? It is always a pleasure for me to be here. This is about my fourth visit, official visitation, to this great and venerable parish. Uh, even though I've been here on several other occasions for big occasions and various teachings, it's always good to be here at St. Anne's Church. I look forward to bringing you a more formal greeting from the rest of the diocese at the time of the announcements and also to say a brief word about how things are going and what, um, what plans that I have for the future after retirement. I'm scared to announce those plans because God laughs. <laughs> uh, my plans never work out, but God's plan endures forever. I want to call your attention today to the Gospel lesson where the Pharisees went out and they plotted to entrap Jesus. Imagine that, religious leaders plotting to entrap prophets. When does that ever happen? <laughs> and so I want to talk to you today about what, a, what giving to the state means and what being a Christian means. Let us pray to God for inspiration. Let us pray. Tell us what we need to hear, O oh God, and show us. Show us what we need to do to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen. So today's Gospel reading contains one of Jesus' most famous sayings in the Scriptures. He was asked by the, those who are the religious leaders, he says, Tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And Jesus is saying in the old King James Version, was render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. What a timely message for us in this pre-election season of commercials about who you should elect. The scripture begs the question, does being a good Christian go hand in hand with being a good citizen? Now, there's no one scripture passage that answers all questions on any given subject, uh, including this one. It doesn't provide all the answers, but this does zero in on the question in a pointed way. What's the context here? What's going on? What's going on is a conflict. Ah. We get a lot of good theology because of conflict. If there's no conflict, we don't refine our thinking. This conflict, conflict was between the Pharisees on the one hand and the Herodians on another. These were two religious and political parties. The Pharisees, this strict religious group, they resented having to pay taxes to the Roman occupiers of Israel. Why are we paying taxes? To them. And they would have welcomed Jesus, giving them a good reason to withhold payment. And then on the other hand, the party supporting King Herod, hence the Herodians, Herod and the Jewish royal family, they wanted 
to support their local puppet government by taxes. So they would have welcomed Jesus, giving them an argument for paying taxes. So both both parties knew that there were two competing currencies, money. There was the Jewish currency, which of course had no human images on it at all. And then there was the Roman currency, which showed the head of the reigning emperor with this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine authority, Pontifex Maximus. You thought my title was big. (laughs) That's a good title. And that means that he was not only the head of the state, the nation, but he was also head, the high priest, of the pagan Roman religion. So when Jesus asked them to show the coin used to pay the Roman tax, they produced the Roman coin. And he was basically then telling them to give the coin, give that coin back to its rightful owner, which could be interpreted by the Pharisees as a rejection of Rome but it could also be interpreted by the Herodians as acceptance. Jesus was a wise guy. (laughs) I wish I could give answers that pleased the conservatives and the evangelicals and the liberals, and I, I wish I could get an answer that was seemed right to everybody. Okay, I do. (laughs) Yeah, I know, you're laughing. But this was a brilliant answer, and it allowed him to escape the political trap that the religious leaders had tried to set out for him. Now, on the surface, it seems that the scripture is defending a kind of two kingdoms way of thinking, where the the kingdom of the nation is one thing and the kingdom of God is on the other, and that they're equal. But actually, theologically, the wealth of God is paramount for people of faith. How then should we show allegiance to the state, allegiance to the nation? Now, there are some Christian theologians and ethicists who rule out patriotism altogether as out of bounds for a Christian in any country. They're saying, no, don't give any, do the exact minimum of what you have to do because it is competing with the kingdom of God. But most theologians over time, the great tradition is that the concerns of the state and the concerns of the faith actually coincide on many important points. And that Christians do have some loyalty and responsibility to the state. But what does that loyalty look like? Is there such a thing as a Christian patriotism? The Reverend William Sloan Coffin was one, he was a hero of mine, and later in life a friend. He was longtime chaplain at Yale University, and uh, in his later years he taught after spending some time at the Riverside Church in New York, and he and I served on the faculty at Vanderbilt Divinity School for a while. 
And on this question, he taught me something. He said, there are three kinds of patriotism, two of them bad and one of them good. First, the bad. The first kind of patriotism is what we can call a loveless criticism. Now, these are the people who would just as soon spit on America, burn its national symbols, such as the flag, and whose anger at this country is both unhealthy and unhelpful. It's almost as if their grievances have overshadowed everything and they can see no good that the government can do. And taken to its extreme, and we see this some, it gets to this. Government is bad. Government can't do anything. The best you can do is try to limit it, but sometimes just try to get rid of it or maybe shut it down. Government bad. And that's also said in the name of patriotism. I'm a good patriot, so I'm against the government. Well, that's a bad form of patriotism, a, love, uh, a, a loveless criticism. You can't do anything right. And then there's the other bad one, and that is what we call an uncritical love of the state. It's an uncritical love version of patriotism. These are those patriots who cannot brook any serious critique, let alone condemnation, of the president, of the government, of its policies, or especially, especially, my political party. What makes it bad is that the only chance that a democracy such as, as, as ours can succeed is if there's an informed populace deeply in love with their country who love it enough to challenge it, to critique, and to protest when the nation does not live up to its high ideals. Our nation's founders knew that dissent in a democracy is not a synonym for disloyalty and that what really is unpatriotic is subservience. They knew that if you got rid of the protesters, if you try to drive out the protesters, then that's the beginning of the end of democracy. As much as you hate what they may be saying, and depending on which side of that fence they're on, you're going to not like one side of them. If your tendency is to silence the other, then the democracy goes. As hard as it is, we should welcome protest and welcome the protesters. So an uncritical love doesn't work either. But better than a loveless criticism or an uncritical love is a third kind of patriotism, which is those good patriots in every country who carry on a lover's quarrel with the nation. This is a reflection of God's eternal lover's quarrel with the world and with us. God quarreled with, contended with, uh, the nation of Israel, ancient Israel, 
and God contends with and quarrels with the United States of America. Precisely because God loves it. God loves the state and wants the nation to act on God's behalf for justice, for peace, not for national self-interest. This is the biblical ideal for the people of God if they are to be faithful. This was the stance of the prophets in both the Old and the New Testaments. In every case, they went against the conventional wisdom of those in power. In every case, they challenged the powerful and the masses of people who uncritically went with, went along with whatever the powers told them. Well, he or she said it, so it must be true. The prophets then, as you can imagine, let's see, where those in power go, well, thank you, prophets. I really appreciate your message. I know you're doing God's work. No, no. Prophets were castigated. Prophets were branded disloyal for not praising the nation. Even though it was officially, the ancient Israel was a theocracy, a nation under God. We say we're a nation under God. The Israelite kings would have preferred that the prophets had simply blessed them and prayed for them. The powers in our nation and state would really love it if especially those of us in the collar would just go there and give the opening prayer <laughs> and pray the blessings and then just smile the rest of the meeting and be on your way. <laughs> but critique them? No one likes a prophet. A prophet, though, only prophesies in his or her own country, among their own people, challenging only one's own nation to live according to God's vision for a just society, no matter how politically inconvenient that may be. The prophets did this because they loved the nation not because they hated it. As one of our most admired presidents, Abraham Lincoln, once said, to sin by silence when a people should protest makes all of us cowards. When have you spoken up for the right thing and for justice, not out of self-interest, what's good for you, but what's good for all. So in keeping with today's gospel lesson to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, we as followers of Christ should laud and love our country for its ideals, its accomplishments of justice and freedom. I do. And we should all honor all those brave men and women who put their lives on the line for those ideals. And they stand for it, to defend, not as General Milley said last week, uh, taking oaths not to defend country, not to defend kings or those in power or those who think that they should be un, uh, not uh, critiqued at all, but to defend the Constitution. We honor them to defend it. But our honor, will ring hollow 
in this election season without also, without first, confession. For we confess that we have not and do not now always live up to our high-sounding ideals. We confess that as a nation we have fallen short and we do fall short. We confess that sometimes we have a long way to go. And we confess that as Christians, as a church, we have not always called the nation, the state, the county, or the city to live up to God's vision. We confess that we have been made too comfortable and with the benefits of society and too slow to extend those benefits to everyone. A true Christian patriotism, then, should lead to introspection, self-critique, in which we closely examine our common life, our goals and policies, to see if there's anything that goes against the will of God. And when the prophets of our day make us angry, because basically they're telling us, you gotta change. When the prophets are telling us truths that we do not want to admit, and they point out those hypocrisies in our national life and in our church that we do not want to see, then we need to listen to them. We need to hear them. Because you know, prophets don't have credentials. They, they, don't, they don't go to college and get a master's degree in prophecy. Uh, they don't get licensed by the American Academy of Prophecy. No. The words of the prophets, as I was told by some singers some 50 years ago, are written on the subway walls <laughs> and the tenement halls. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Prophet Simon and Garfunkel. These prophets are the ones Frequently, they're not highly educated, frequently. Sometimes they're the young. They're the inappropriate ones. They're the ones who hang out on the margins. They are marginalized. Those on the bottom rungs of the social caste system, whatever it is in that community, the prophets. These are the ones who can help us to confess our sins against God and our neighbor to confess our national faults, our church's faults, and repent and turn back. One of the reasons I'm so proud of the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland is the work that it's been doing, a big work for the last 20 years, of going into our history and telling the truth. Here is how our church benefited from 350 years of enslaving persons. Here is how our church has benefited from taking away lands of those who belong to indigenous populations. Here is how we have millions of dollars at our disposal because of the sins. And after uncovering the truth, pushed by prophets, our diocese said, we got to do something about that. 
That sticks in our craw. We, that can't remain. We're going to return some of what we've earned over centuries to the impoverished communities of Maryland. Prophets helped us to do that. Finally, the aim of true Christian patriotism, then, is not to get God on our side. No. Or not to get God to subscribe to our political party. But it's to get us on God's side. It's not about asking God to bless our nation's agenda, but rather to get this nation more firmly onto God's agenda. And what is the agenda for God for the body politic? God's agenda for all people, no matter what their race, creed, color, what is God's agenda? Justice. And not just the form of justice, which is uh, an ordering of society of rights and wrongs, but that sense of justice as making sure that all residents have access, adequate access to the resources for living that all people are fed and housed and educated and the benefits of this society. That's God's agenda. What's our agenda? The purpose of our prayer and our patriotism is to get us all on God's agenda. It's most succinctly and best spelled out, of course, in the Book of Common Prayer on page 278. Turn with me. To page 278, turn with me on this because, Olivia, this is going to be on the test. <laughs> you know, Liz, uh, Olivia Hilton was one of the seminarians where I taught. For, I don't know what I taught her. <laughs> she said something. <laughs> contemplative, uh, contemplative prayer and preaching. 258, and we're going to close with this, this prayer. Let's read it together. This is God's agenda, the prayer for the nation at the top of the page. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, you have made all the peoples of the earth for your glory, to serve you in freedom and in peace. Give to the people of our country a zeal for justice, and the strength of forbearance, that we may use our liberty in accordance with your gracious will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever.